Welcome to the 2030 podcast. We are now on our second episode of season two and it is the season after the fifth edition of the 2020-30, the Berlin Fashion Summit, which took place in January 2023. Today we're sitting together and we're hearing from three voices from our summit, from Christine Goulet, Professor Frederike von Wedel-Palo and Veronica Bates-Cassetli. I am Magdalena and... I am Max and we're both from Studio MMO4. While last episode we still listened to Dr. Luke Haverhals and had this amazing input from him about this, his vision of a plastic-free uh, fashion industry, today um, we're talking about something else. But maybe just as a general reminder, our summit was uh, divided into two parts. Into The first part um, was all about regenerative culture, second part all about regenerative businesses. And today we have um, more insights from the regenerative business side, even though I would argue there are still a lot of cultural questions around it. And maybe to kickstart it a bit, Magdalena, I think what we're going to listen to later, basically it's all about, well, our title also, Active Alliances, but maybe more specific even about like how collaborations work nowadays and what is needed for collaborations. And I, I wonder actually, I mean, we are collaborating for such a long time now, But how would you define a good collaboration? Well, I think, and there I do agree with Christine Goulet quite a lot, that a common language is actually the base because you actually need to understand each other and to need to commit to a certain language to actually have a true understanding of what you are talking about and also to be able to commit to the same goals. And this is, uh, I think, the ground for like a fruitful collaboration. Yeah, I totally agree. And what do you think? Is is there a certain key to make it then, well, to, to give it a chance to create some magic in there? Because that's always what I feel, you know, how this this maybe naive, but I think very important still idea of one plus one being more than two. You know, how, how to make this happen and not having just this pragmatic collaboration of two business partners, but something that can spark and inspire at the end. Well, I think it's a lot about inspiration. And I mean, we are seeing quite a lot of collaborations in the fashion world, at least. And I mean, most of them are actually only like marketing things, new to launch new products and to a have something here, to to have something to communicate to press and have like a small press event and so on. And I mean, when we are talking about collaboration, it uh, dives a bit deeper. And we are talking about long-term partnerships uh, with suppliers along this value chain and uh, many other topics. And I think this is also the difference maybe between like a true collaboration or like an active alliance, as we call it, it probably goes one step further. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think... The alliance probably needs more systematic kind of approaches still, etc. A collaboration can be easily done and spun and done, yeah, kind of initiated with a handshake, let's say. I would think an alliance needs a little bit more structure around it, that's true. But um, shall we revisit our summit and actually listen to um, the input we got there from Christine Goulet? Yeah, please. So maybe to just introduce her 
again to also our audience here who hasn't been at the summit possibly. Um, Christine is the founder and CEO of Sustainable, an advisory service that helps brands to develop their sustainability strategies. And she has this amazing network and a really rich background in working with sustainable brands, including um, Pangaya, which is probably one of the most progressive in terms of material science. Um, she also worked with Edune Apparel and for a long time she was the head of sustainable innovation at Caring. So definitely an important and relevant voice of the industry. Let's hear from Christine. Hi, everybody. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, cool. I'm so happy to be here. I've been blown away already by the discussions this morning. So congrats to the organizing team and thank you for inviting me. So what I want to focus on today is the importance of language. So as, as you heard, I just recently found my own consulting practice. Um, my experience before was mostly in brands. So I started in sustainable fashion a long time ago now in a company called Eden. Eden was founded by Ellie Houston and Bono of U2 to create sustainable employment in sub-Saharan Africa. So I was hired to kind of build out the supply chain in sub-Saharan Africa. I worked with the design team, the production team, and building out everything, all the products we were going to sell and the e-commerce side. So I did that. It's going to show my age, but between 2006 and 2009. Um, and since then, I also worked in a big group, which is the Caring Group, which you probably know. So I'm based in Paris, and Caring has the, the houses um, Gucci and Saint Laurent and Balenciaga and, you know, uh, Bottega, all of those guys. And then after caring, I worked at Pangaya for about a year and a half. That's a material science company with both a direct-to-consumer brand and also a B2B business, which was uh, to provide a turnkey solution for other brands to be able to uptake new innovative materials, dyes, etc. Um, so a lot of brand experience. So when I'm talking, what I want to talk about today, when I'm talking about language, I'm going to be using working with people in brands as an example, but I want to run through kind of a framework that I think could be applied to many different people that you're talking to. And as you see here, you know, I really feel like this is an inflection point in fashion. I think probably a lot of you feel that as well. We had a lot of conversation this morning about what future do we want to build an inclusive an inclusive future where all voices, voices are at the table, and I think fashion is finally getting that, which is quite exciting. And I, in my work, what I'm doing, I'm working with investors, I'm working with brands, I'm working with a lot of startups, but there is sort of a lot of translation and bridging these different stakeholder groups um, to make sure that everyone's understanding each other. Because when people don't understand each other, it can cause frustration, it can cause defensiveness, feelings of isolation, and that will inhibit us from making the progress that we all want to make. And so how can we talk in a way that we're including everybody? So first, we're going to play a game. So we're going to start, I'm going to show a word, and something will come to mind for you. So think of that first thing that comes to mind, and then we're going to kind of ask what that was, okay? Equity. Education. Food, education non-exploitation. So that was an example, thank you. Equity in the sense of what is equality, what is equity? Now why am I putting it up there? Because depending on who you're talking to, they might be thinking of equity in terms of the capital within a company. So if you're talking to someone on the finance team, if you're talking to maybe a startup that's doing a fun funding round, you say equity, 
they're not going to be thinking about equality and equity. This is what's coming to mind. If you're talking to a marketing person, you say equity, they might be thinking about brand equity. How do we build up the reputation of, of our brand? How do we make it as strong as possible? Another one, stock. Yes? Your inventory. Your inventory, or again, the stock you have in a company, right? So as sustainability professionals, it's, it's a generalization, but usually we're not necessarily thinking of, of this meaning when we're, when we're talking. Share, same. We could have someone is sharing with you, and we could have the shares in the company, for example. Growth, as in nature. Growth, as in are we growing our revenue? How are we doing um, with this new product category, et cetera? So this is just a little game to, to, to make you realize, and I, I, I'm sure you all do, but depending on who you're talking to, you say something, they could have a completely different understanding of what that is. So it's really obviously important for us to think about what is, what is the language that we're using? Who are we speaking to and how are we addressing them? So I want to bring up, this is kind of a cool framework, I think, that can be used. Um, there's a woman named Laurie McGinley who works with climate tech startups. And I was listening to her podcast, and she was talking about love languages. What is the love language you use? I don't know if anyone knows this book, The Five Love Languages, which is usually for your relationship, you know? What, what do you respond to? Do you respond to words of affirmation? Do you respond to physical touch? Um, do you respond to acts of service? So the purpose of this book is that you identify what your love language is and then your partner starts to understand, okay, how do I communicate based on this knowledge? What actions do I take to make my partner happy? And what do I avoid? So I think it's interesting to think in your day to day, like so much of what we're trying to do when we're pushing that sustainability agenda is get the person on the other side of the table to to want to do this, right? So in a way, it's how can we figure out what their love language is? And so there are simple things you can think of, and it's kind of like if you're in business development or sales and you want to create that persona of who you're talking to or, or in marketing and who's that persona. But think about these things before you go to meet with someone that you're trying to change their mind or get them to join your project or your initiative and think about what pain points are they facing and how you can help solve those pain points. You think about what solutions you're bringing to the table. Often when I talk with startups who say they're a tech provider, or they're this and this, I think, no, you're a solution provider. And you come with the solution, and you think about how you're going to connect all the dots, and not just one piece, but how you can bring them uh, an all-out solution to their problem as much as possible. Obviously, it's not always easy, but to think bigger than just your one product, your one thing to the solution they need. You have to think about what motivates them. So this could be both within their business or personally. If you have some small talk and you realize they love to go skiing and you can talk about, boy, there's really warm weather this year. Is there any snow? And you know, you they start getting them thinking about how they might be losing some of the things that they love. And then how they're incentivized. So there's, there's a thing. Um, I, I studied psychology. And there's a theory on which is called fundamental attribution error. I see some nods. So some people know fundamental attribution error. And this is when if someone behaves in a certain way, you attribute their behavior to their individual character. When often the reason why they're behaving a certain way is because of the circumstances or the environment that they're in. And when we're talking to our colleagues in our companies or whatever, they have their own set of incentives. So you go to the procurement person and you're like, procurement person, you, we, need to, we need to change the way we're doing things. Pay 20% more for this organic 
cotton or for this you know, new type of leather. And they're thinking, if I do that, I'm not going to be meeting my annual objectives. I'm not going to be meeting my targets. So you really have to understand what are those incentives. As much as possible, work within your company to make sure the incentives are aligned so that people can work with you on the sustainability side. But really try to understand that because that's the driver. I mean, if there's any silver bullet to what we're doing, it's incentives, you know, how people are incentivized. And then all of this can get to the heart of the person that you're talking to and make them really want to listen and open them up to what you're saying. So what language have you been speaking? I'm going to tell you how I started out more. I think over time I've learned a little bit, but I went into meetings as a sustainability professional. You can, you can tell me if this sounds familiar to you. So I'm working in the brands. I want to con convince them that we should be doing a new project. And I go in and I go to the finance team and I go, we need to reduce our impact. It's the right thing to do. And then I go to legal and compliance and I go, we have to do this. It's the right thing to do. And I think as sustainability professionals, you know, we do feel really, um, or not all, always professionals, but people trying to push the sustainability agenda, we feel really passionate about these things. And we use our love language on everybody. And we don't necessarily stop and say, this might not be the way to get to this person. And we're always using green and brown. So that also, you know, that's been around forever. But um, I think this can result in some of that defensiveness, potentially some fear, some resentment, because you're not paying enough attention to all of the things that are important to this person. So what are some of the things, and again, if it were more easy to interact, I don't know if we can get the microphone, but what are some things you could bring up to the chief financial officer? Do you feel like you have the tools or the language that would resonate with someone on the finance team if you're trying to work with them? Or do you feel like you don't even have that language? Who feels like they have some language that would work? Okay. Most people feel like, no, I don't really have that language. I'm not really sure how to talk to them. Yeah? Okay, well, let's go through some examples. So for the chief financial officer, it could be talking about new revenue opportunities. You know, I think that innovation has done a great job of kind of flipping the narrative of what is sustainability. I think historically you bring up sustainability and some of your colleagues might think, oh, sustainability. What do you think of when you think of like, oh, we have to use a new sustainable material. Some of the things they might think of would be what? Can anyone, anyone have any suggestions? Oh, it's, if it's sustainable, it's going to, what's that? It's going to last. Okay, that's a positive one. It's going to cost more. If it's sustainable, this is going to cost more. What else might they say? It could take a long time. We might have to change how we're doing things. So th I think, you know, there's been a lot of resistance in some ways to we have to do things sustainably. But when innovation came up and you start talking about innovation, you get different people around the table. You get finance people around the table because they're like, wow, or you get the innovation around the table and they think, there are new revenue opportunities here. We're going to tap into a whole new customer segment that we haven't tapped into before. Um, we're going to maybe do things in a more efficient way. We're going to uh, gain efficiencies in our supply chain because this technology will allow us to have more visibility and transparency and, and we're going to be able to save costs. You know, and these are t the types of things that can get some of your colleagues excited to come on the journey. Um, same now with legal and compliance, because obviously there's a lot of regulation coming into place. So you want to talk to le the legal and compliance team and you want to say things like, we, we, we pursue this project, we will be compliant with the incoming legislation. Um, we're going to reduce our risk. 
uh, we're going to yeah, be meeting the CSRD requirements. And in the long term, maybe there's a, an initial uh, investment, but in the long term, this will save us money, right? And then maybe they're, they're like willing to give you the budget to, to put in like a, a traceability platform or something where they wouldn't have been interested in that before. Um, same for innovation team, I touched on that with new product categories or customer acquisition or the marketing team, consumer loyalty, consumer engagement, differentiation. So all of these are just some examples of how you could tap in. And again, this could also be obviously applied to anybody in the value chain. So you go to a farmer and you're saying this is going to increase your produ productivity or your yield, or this is going to help the next generation be able to run this farm and stay on the farm. Um, same with the factories, this will lower your defects or this will improve, improve your efficiency. So always trying to think of that foot in the door to get them excited. Um, now I do want to bring up something a little different obviously too because I mentioned I worked at Eden and Eden um, was, it's a great company but I did a lot of business development and sales. And sometimes you're going to be surprised. So sometimes you think, okay, I'm going to go into the CFO and I'm going to talk about this thing and, and he's going to get it because I'm talking about he's going to reduce his cost of capital. But what I did find, just giving Eden as an example, and again, I'm sure you have similar situations, but it's nice sometimes to kind of think through this process. But because it was... Um, 100% African, I could talk about that to some people who I thought would be most interested in the African angle. Because it was founded by Ali Houston and Bono, I could talk about the music side to people who I knew would be interested in that. A lot of what we did was organic, so there was that angle there. A lot of what we did was um, fair trade based, you know, working with the people in our supply chain, so this whole social component. And so you can think too about what is your offering and how you tweak and you bring out those pieces of your offering that you think will resonate the most. But the caveat is always that you do get surprised. So you can go into, you think, oh, this person's going to care the most about the fact that it's 100% African, and they might be like, oh my gosh, I. I love you too, you know? <laughs> or you might go to the a CFO somewhere and you're going, and this is gonna long-term, well, you'll see how uh, it'll, it'll increase your revenue uh, because we're tapping into these new markets. And they might be more interested in the fact that he took his family to you know, India five years ago and the fact that the product is, is made there. So y y you gotta be open and um, of course, as always, but really listening on all levels and trying to, to bring out not only what you think will work on the business side, but what's going to work on the human side. And someone referred to this in an earlier panel, but you know, uh, everybody, everybody really wants to do the right thing, right? And everybody has that little bit of passion inside of them to do the right thing. And I think what we can do as we're trying to achieve our sustainability goals is tap into where is that little bit of passion and by using this language that will ease us in and might not scare them away and really trying to listen to where, where they're interested, we can, we can grow that and sort of bring them on that journey with us. So that's all, that's all I wanted to say today. So thank you for your time and would love to talk with anyone afterwards to see if you've had similar experiences. No, thank you. Thanks, Christine, for your warm yet critical deep dive into how we can communicate towards a regenerative future and build stronger relationships. I really like what you've been telling about the love language of business. 
Max, what's coming up next? Well, next we have obviously uh, Professor Friederike von Villepalo, who is our dear co-organizer of the summit since the beginning. And she is the founder of the Beneficial Design Institute as well. And we paired her with Veronica Bates-Cassidy, a regular at our summit by now, and a critical voice and an independent analyst. Did you think it, it worked out well to pair them? Absolutely. I think they're brilliant experts who come from very different backgrounds. But, uh, I mean, as we were thinking, what if we put them to in the conversation together? And I think that works really well. Just listen to them. Our next session is an interview, and it has the, the fancy title, The New Legislative Roadmap, Bridging Ambitious Sustainability and Corporate Reality. What do we mean by that? What do we mean by that is that we have different ways of looking at sustainability. And the actual question, how sustainable is it to produce a product, is hardly ever possible to really answer, because there is a different perspectives on it and as we heard from our fellow panelists now we're very often lacking the data to very concretely say is it more sustainable to do it in way a or in way b so there's a little bit of a gap between the metrics that we use and the frameworks that we have like the sustainable development goals to look at sustainability and the corporate reality of doing things and that's what we want to discuss in this next session how to bridge these perspectives and how to get to a more realistic way perhaps of measuring sustainability i have two really fantastic speakers with me i'm very excited to share the stage with them one is here live so i'll bring her on stage first frederica von Palo. let's have a big round of applause great to have come next to me it's great to have you here frederica let me into you a little bit more formally. Friederike is a professor of sustainable design and concepts running the master's program sustainability in the fashion and creative industries here in Berlin. You're also Berlin born and based I believe which is not too uh, too common to come by so always good to highlight. Has really had a, a long-standing and uh, rich career in sustainable fashion having founded the Beneficial Design Institute in 2016 having consulted in different ways and capacities um, and developed these different educational programs to really make sure next generation of designers incorporate these ideas from the get-go. So it's great to have you here. And we're also joined virtually by Veronica Bates-Cassidy, who's a former World Bank financial analyst and economist. And she's currently working as an independent analyst, writer, and critical thought leader, we would say, in the sustainable apparel industry. Um, she's published different works, including um, a collaboration with the Geneva Center for Business and Human Rights, The Great Greenwashing Machine, Part 1 and 2, and tomorrow we'll be releasing a new publication, which is, again, going to shake up the scene a little bit in terms of, yeah, in terms of really looking at what is sustainable, what is not. So, uh, great to have you both here. Let's begin the conversation. I just foreshadowed that you'd be, uh, you're about to publish your latest paper, and perhaps um, we can start with a question, if you can briefly outline from your perspective, how do we measure and define sustainability today? What's wrong with that? And what are we going to learn from your upcoming publication? Okay. Uh, quickly first, the name of the publication is um, 
uh, amplifying misinformation in the case of sustainability and disease in fashion. It will be available on the Geneva Center for Business and Human Rights website because my co-author, uh, Professor Bauman Poli, is the, the the head of that that, that that organization. If you can't remember that name, come to my website, Veronica Bates Casatli, tomorrow, and the link will be there, and you can just go and you can see all the data, all the analysis that that underlines all of this. And basically, what we've done is we've looked at the Business of Fashion Sustainability Index as a prism, really. When it's not the index isn't what we're really looking at. It's we're looking at the prism to see how fashion defines and measures sustainability. And the BOF index quite accurately seizes on the fact that sustainability at the present time has two globally uh, agreed targets. One is the UN SDGs. And the other is the Paris Agreement on uh, climate change, both of which have to be achieved by 2030, which is, of course, why you have this title for your event, which is Berlin 2020-2030, you know. So so that's what it's looking at and and very accurately and both uh, quite succinctly summarizes under the different headings what the brands are saying they're doing. And we compared this with what they are doing and we find that they're not that what's being measured, what's being claimed does not actually, can't be substantiated to be achieving either of these targets. Um, and so you're maybe if you can also already share and then that will give us an outline to take the conversation forth. Um, how, how should we be measuring sustainability? Is your suggestion, as I understand, maybe to this it's this jungle of metrics and different ways of looking at things. How can we simplify that to make companies, to enable companies to actually work with them? Uh, well, I think actually, you know, it is quite, quite simple. If we think that's what we want, those two targets, you know, sustainability is very complex. It's very multifaceted. It's easy to get bogged down in the details, but we want to keep it simple. We want to see change now. So let's just look at those two. Okay. So, uh, is fashion doing something to eliminate poverty and hunger in its supply chain? And is it reducing its GHG emissions? That's, that's really what we have to measure. And when we look at what they're doing, we see that, in fact, they're not actually measuring these things. When we look at, you know, uh, the impact of preferred fibers, there isn't data to show that they actually provide um, income security and food security to farmers. When we look at uh, what they're talking about in terms of apparel's GHG emissions, it's perhaps even more egregious because we see that people aren't actually reporting on uh, where they're producing. So we have a lot of focus. A lot of people will tell you, oh, what matters most is the fiber choice. But in fact, if you look at the very data that the industry uses, to substantiate its fiber choices, that shows that raw materials are only about 10% of the lifetime emissions. And the big ticket item is the manufacturing. So manufacturing, we're going from spinning to cut, make, trim. It's about 80% of the production emissions. And the carbon intensity of the energy varies enormously from one country to another. So, I mean, if anybody wants to go to our world in data, you can see that the carbon intensity of the French electricity grid, for instance, is roughly one-tenth of that of the China and India. So if you 
if you have a garment that's been spun knit woven in France, it has a manufacturing impact that is 80, sorry, 90% lower than that of one in China or India. And if it was manufactured in Italy or Portugal, the climate impact is about 65% lower. Now, this obviously dwarfs any fiber impact, but that information is not given to consumers or anyone else. Frederica, how do you feel about simplifying these metrics and the focus really on poverty alleviation, carbon emissions as 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 a sort of a, a contract, a social contract for what we should be focusing on? Thank you so much, um, Veronica, for bringing these uh, clear and reduced points up because working with companies and trying to really improve products, it shows how difficult it is to actually re- really know what what they're doing and how to re- reduce it so it uh, it these measures of uh, of the energy example that you just gave it also gives such a good argument for european production for example so also that has a lot of other benefits uh, in addition to that or also for companies then to see from start that starting point how if you produce in other countries how to then improve your whole production process there because in the moment just uh, 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 changing the material doesn't really help uh, and the carbon emission or if you try to decarbonize the whole points of the production is totally left out Uh, it's it's not a point uh, in the discussion what we also try to to deal with the customers, but it's it's hard to get measures in into that one as, as if they don't exist. So I, I think this uh, reduction, something that counts for everybody as a starting point, to me sounds really a very good point. But I have to also say with the SDGs, I find it really super interesting and eyes-opening because up to now the SDGs, I experienced them more as the 17 SDGs that are used as a very holistic framework where fashion companies tend to cherry pick the ones that they actually want to tackle and make a mixture of uh, mostly the the SDG 12 uh, responsible um, production and consumption for example is a very favorite one but the first three that they're really prior this was also what I took from your paper I think this is a very enlightening view on on the SDGs that's really about reducing poverty hunger and the health and well-being which I think is really the core of what we should do it's very much in line with the beneficial design concept of putting life quality in the core of whatever we do. We had a little pre-chat to outline our conversation and this is just a thought building on also the last conversation that we just had and looking at the fact that our title is the new legislative roadmaps. We have these very concrete legislations on the German and EU level when it comes to supply chain, uh, uh, transparency and, um, and a move toward more circularity and they will force companies to change the way they work because they're legally binding. And then on the other hand, we have this global agreement that is the SDGs, which is giving sort of a vision for the world to move toward but it's not a legally binding framework. Company, uh, cu- um, countries commit to it, mm. but there's, and of course there are metrics and keep your eyes in there, but there's no um, 
yeah, there's no sort of legal framework around it in that sense. Do you think that is a problem, Veronica, if we're sort of focusing on these two perspectives? I do think that um, the problem is, indeed, I've already raised this question in the context of the PEF and in game with the green button, that it cheerily announces that a product is sustainable without looking at all on the, soci the socioeconomic impact. And it doesn't look at the fact that, you know, 50% of Benin's cotton, uh, sorry, 50% of Benin's foreign exchange comes from its sales of cotton. And that cotton is, you know, the primary uh, source of cash for, for, for most of the population. And these are, these are vital considerations. And I personally feel these are design flaws and that they need to be corrected. And just because someone has decided they're going to legislate a particular model at a particular point in time does not mean that we citizens have to sit back and take it. We are entitled to come forward with our concerns and say, you know, like this report, we've, we've looked into what's, what really matters, if you will. And we're saying, no, you shouldn't be allowed to use some kind of, of index of emissions, you should be obliged to use your actual production emissions. And no, you shouldn't be allowed to, to pretend that it's sustainable without considering whether you did or did not pay a living wage. And uh, I mean, I, I do wonder sometimes because this is a violation of uh, commitments and bilateral agreements countries like France have made to Benin. And I do wonder whether at some point some of these countries are going to register that this legislation is disadvantaging them. And obviously, most of them don't know anything about it. So, but when they find out, will they start claiming this is, you know, uh, unfair trade practices? Uh, there's many, many possibilities. But um, yes, <laughs> I hope that answers your question. Yes, I think that's very important to point out when we're talking about these legislative frameworks that there are they're not all aligned, and that there are definite um, issues looking at some of these. Uh, yeah, some of these um, uh, lacking English vocabulary right now, but discrepancies that we have th between these legal frameworks in some ways. Um, uh, when, when Veronica says scrapping uh, the indexes and working with your own actual data, translating that back to sort of a practical realm of working with different companies, how do you feel corporates would would think about that is that like oh thank goodness that's what we've been waiting for or is that might that bring a little bit of yeah a, a, companies out of their comfort zone i mean uh, i find it surprising working also with german smes um, that have actually a sustainable air somehow that some of them really are totally far away from any data and uh, today would not at all be capable to even say exactly where they do what in detail. They kind of, they maybe have products that are very long lasting or most certain materials, but wouldn't also, I think the, the, when we discuss here transparency or having real data and the way how people produce today, it's, it's a huge way to go also therefore i find this simplified way to just kind of take the country's um scope uh an easy one to start uh to have for everybody the same chance and this is also where we really need the legislation to have a level place because we have some really forerunner we heard uh, several today and we're sitting here in this bubble and feels like there's so much going on but seeing kind of what's actually going on where was 
1.42% of uh, German purchases are, are done sustainably. So we're really far away from having Is that a, still the statistic? I I'll, I'll be just post-COVID, because there was all this talk in the beginning of the pandemic of a new wave of sustainability consciousness amongst consumers. Yeah. And no, I just got from the um, BMUZ uh, in November the latest numbers from Germany. So it's really still... The reality is far from that. That's, I think, where we also really need to have these simplified ways to do it. That's humbling. Yeah. Um, so do you see any problems with the simplification or do you think it will still leave enough space to look at sustainability and its complexity, the cultural sides, the sides that are perhaps not immediately covered by poverty alleviation and greenhouse gas emissions like biodiversity or other, other um, ecosystem measures, let's say? Well, I think some companies will be also really able to show us a uh, pave the way to really have this holistic perspective and get this in based on a foundation that counts for everybody but we do need of course also in the cultural way to find ways how to also um, look into how uh, we can measure also the um, the perware um, Uh, part and how we can actually influence the customer to really use the clothes longer and to cherish them and love them and repair them and so on. But also in project, we were just doing a project with the students um, on impact uh, beyond product to really see how can we, um, how can a company get a positive impact? We work with armed angels. How can they get a positive impact? not by only reducing their own impact in production, but also see how can they actually impact people's behavior so that they um, reduce um, mobility uh, and, and housing and so on, which actually uh, in the carbon footprint of people's life takes a much bigger part than garments, um, which is only 4%, but mobility is 19% of the carbon footprint of a person, of an average person, and to really see how can we impact that. But also how can we uh, try to really measure the perware um, uh, question and that's really difficult how do we get people on board kind of making a click or count kind of how do we get to data on that side Veronica I kind of we really didn't find the answer kind of students were uh, struggling a lot in thinking how can we make that one possible to have real data on that side of the end yeah 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 that's very different I think one one thing we can do is First, make it clear to the consumer that that's what matters. Stop telling them, worry about the fiber content. It's not whether it's organic or our pet. Tell them what really, really matters is entirely in their hands. How many times you wear or use this item. And don't kid yourself that because you bought it secondhand, you can wear it five times and throw it out or send it back down. No, you know, how many times are you going to use it? And, and think about that also from the, the point of view of your pocketbook. Divide the number of wares into the price you're going to pay and say to yourself, oh, is this such a good deal? It's only $12 or whatever, euros, pounds, whatever currency you like, but I'm only going to wear it twice or three times. Would I be better buying something that costs 100, 200, 1,000 euros if I, only if I was going to wear it 1,000 times? I think if you, you start telling, the, you, you, we want to empower consumers. And I think that's very important. And the other good thing about uh, the thing of, Another way, should we say, to, to start getting an impact per wear. I don't know if you saw in the report, I talk a bit about uh, Ingen Klepp and CIFO and her research work. 
this woman is a star and she's one of the few people actually looking at use patterns and wear patterns. And she's already had one study which showed that actually the fiber choice was very important in how many times people wore a garment. And they wore silk the most number of times and wool the second. The other thing that was very important was how many times you could wear it before you had to wash it. And I, this really resonates with me because I have a beautiful Kenzo white cotton shirt. I almost never wear it because it is a nightmare to wash and iron. So, you know, it just sits in my cup and I think, I, can't, I just love this shirt, can't throw it out, but never wear it. So, um, you know, these are really, <laughs> really, and keeping something in your cupboard, people, does not constitute being sustainable. You actually <laughs> have to wear the damn thing. Hmm. So that shirt, I'm afraid, has failed on my sustainability ranking. But yeah, I mean, these, these are, you know, it's like Rome wasn't built in a day. Let's start with what we can do simply and easily. Let's look at where you actually, manu- the fabric was actually manufactured. Let's look at that grid mix. Let's look at whether your, your fiber source actually helped to augment the income of some of the poorest. And you were talking a bit about, about culture and everything as well. And that's, that's, money helps that. It's like, you know, what would help? The indigenous Quechua and Ayamara in Peru to maintain their culture, their love of the alpaca, that the would-be if alpaca farming paid a good return and, and currently doesn't. So, you know, there's there's like an inter you know, money pay money covers a lot, let's be honest, you know, it helps a lot of things. So if you put put money in the different areas, you're probably going to help something happen. I um, would love to open the floor for questions and comments from the audience. And I hope I can squeeze in a couple of questions of mine as well. But I don't want to hog the space. So you first. (laughs) Hi, uh, my question is for Professor Frederica. I want to know what is the role of... uh, Okay, (laughs) so I want to know what is the role of academia on uh, this transition for sustainable fashion if it depends so much on government and public policy? Um, Well, I think the um, legislation is super important for the whole industry to make a change. The role of the next generation, I see it a bit different of course they need to understand where the legislation is and kind of how to use the framework to work with that but um, I think it's also the role of them to also open up for new themes new topics finding new connections uh, um, in the master program um, there are students that kind of really kind of ex- kind of I mean I'm often really surprised with the themes they come up but like do, looking into how and where could fashion also take place, not only in the industry, for example, but as a do it together as other places. Isabella Rhein there, for example, did a fantastic work. Uh, and to kind of really see is, is the one way we do fashion today the answer or are there not a lot of other levels that we kind of um, can take to change the road, change the system completely? Um, and uh, so to take their creativity, their power, but also their need for a true change for this, I think, is where, where, where the role of, of these students is also to really question what we do today. Thank you. Also, thank you for the nice question. Any other questions? Hands going up. Thanks a lot for providing uh, great insights. Uh, my question is about um, <clears throat> the possibility of uh, 
brands and and manufacturers to communicate um, early something that is a proxy in the absence of uh, really a full life cycle assessment and all the data that we would all love, right? Because we all know that it's about the impact in the end. So ideally, I'd want to know the exact uh, greenhouse gas emissions for every product and and for the full life cycle, and that would be ideal. My question is, is there anything else brand can do? Because we know how challenging it is to get to all of this data uh, with complex supply chains as we have in, in, in fashion. And by communicating that, incentivizing further investment, further progress, etc. So uh, is it either we communicate the full thing or nothing? Or is it that we can communicate something while we're on the way of, of getting there? I mean, this is precisely the, the point. At the moment, most brands, when they don't know where their fabric is sourced or their material comes from, they use the MSI. And the MSI is basically taking uh, for spinning, it's Coke and Kaplan. For knitting and weaving, it's Van der Veldenaval. You get a, a kilowatt hours. And then they multiply this by a, a, an energy uh, emissions index, which they obtain by weighting. Uh, the emissions of the various countries that fi- the most fabrics come from China, uh, India, uh, the EU, etc. They've got in there. And now, this totally underestimates. So if you if you get read the report, we have a nice little chart. We have pages on it. They are seriously underestimating their emissions. What we're saying is, no need to go for an LCA. Stick with that model if you like, if it's easy. Uh, but just plug in the actual country emissions. If, you, if it was made in India, then get the grid mix for India. You know, the IEA has a, an annual report of um, uh, electricity and, and, and heat uh, energy emissions by country. And uh, you, the system could take this data and simply plug it in. And then you immediately you can see that if it was made in France, since the emissions uh, associated with the manufacturing are roughly 80%, and, uh, you know, France is, is 90% lower, But, you know, then you start to see that how much lower your emissions are because you produced in France as compared to the next guy who produced in India or China or wherever. And this immediately distinguishes the people who are producing sustainably, either because they're they're sourcing from Europe, for instance, or because they're sourcing from a company. And this you probably have to have a second stage. You need some website where they'd have... uh, a list of the various manufacturing facilities that have installed uh, carbon mitigating technology. And so you could then say, okay, so I source from this company and this company, uh, because it has carbon mitigating technology, my emissions are therefore lower than the average for the country. And this provides a financial incentive to companies, both to source either in Europe or any, you know, any other lower, Brazil has low carbon emissions too. Um, or to to source from a factory, a manufacturing facility that is invested in technology. And it, you actually have an incentive to pay the guy, to reward the, the, the company for this investment. And that incentive does not currently exist. And if you look at the, again, the report talks about this, about the efforts of various companies like Levi's and people have made to try and encourage suppliers uh, to, to invest in, in, in um, emission reduction technology if you will it's not being very very successful because 
there's no financial reward for it in the sense that the electricity is often subsidized in many of these countries for uh, exporting uh, uh, exporting industries, including obviously uh, fashion and apparel. So there's no return to the company. So they're not doing it. And this we is, want them to do it. They have to do it. Uh, this is great, Veronica, because I feel you already kind of squeezed in what I was going to ask as a closing question <laughs> around the implementability of the recommendations that you're making in this report. And just taking from what you've said now, those recommendations are actually not that difficult to implement in the sense that the switch to a country uh, metrics, as you said, is something that's quite easy to do, correct? Very easy. I would have thought, you know, like, <laughs> take a few minutes for the back end of the HIG MSI, for instance, to, to, to switch to that. And if everyone has to use country-specific emissions, everyone has to use country-specific emissions. So and then you start triggering. We're, we're curious and hopeful to see how your report is going to shake things up and if things are going to be moving in this direction. Here's another reminder. The report is going to be published tomorrow with a title, Amplifying Misinformation, the Case of Sustainability Indices in Fashion. And you can check out Veronica's website, I think also 202030 channels, um, for links to this report. So thanks so much, both of you, for having this conversation with us, with me on stage at our event today. And let's have another big round of applause for you guys thank you that was a really nice conversation and it was also kind of critical but uh, not only critical but it was also uh, giving us some ideas into actionable steps towards solutions and this is what I really liked about that what do you think Max? Yeah, I think it really worked out well to pair them because now we can look into the more educational elements of the critique that Veronica is bringing in and how to really make that part of a future industry. Um, because I think, I mean, her critiques are very, very valuable, but at the same time, as the title suggested, we need to look into the corporate reality really to decide what kind of changes we can implement in what kind of time frames. And since we don't have that much time, I think it's also a time for very pragmatic approaches. Eh? And this is something I think we always try to balance with our summit, with all our work. And here was a really nice example on, on how this could work and how an, a powerful criticism can step-by-step step be translated into a different uh, solutions that goes through ac academia, goes through education and, and gets kind of maybe also inspiration from the young generations that think differently and hopefully will also bring different solutions. Absolutely. And we'll be listening to a very pragmatic existing solution in our next episode of our podcast when we're having Megan Michael John from Land to Market and Nix Ericsson, the senior director of Brand Purpose Sustainability and Nix Ericsson from UG, talking about regenerative agriculture within the fashion industry. And as an extra treat, we will actually have Megan join us live in the studio to do an even deeper dive into the future of regenerative agriculture during that episode. That will be really exciting. And to stay up to date, you can always find us on Instagram at 202030summit and follow our hashtag Connecting Progressive Minds. Please don't forget to look into our show notes and stay tuned. See you next time. Well, not literally, maybe. Oh, yeah, true.